We'll go ahead and get started. Welcome, uh, everybody, to a special evening with Oregon's uh, treasurer, Mr. Ted Wheeler. My name is Karen Eichler, and together with my colleague, Father Charlie Gordon, we are the directors of the Garaventa Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture here at the university. <clears throat> Where our job is to shine, find moments of grace in surprising places. And one of the things we've been really delighted about this semester is um, being approached about a variety of programs that have brought every week different people to the University of Portland and to Friends 120. So we're delighted that you're here. I have a few announcements about our programs and logistics, and then I will turn the, the formal introductions over to Father Charlie. Uh, as I mentioned, we have a lot of stuff coming up. If you are not part of our mailing list, which is all electronic, I will invite you to sign up uh, on the back table there on your way out. That also entitles you to uh, weekly podcasts that we post in which Father Charlie reflects on the Sunday readings um, from Mass in a sweet spot from about four to six minutes. And that, that goes out every week. And it keeps you on top of all the things that we have going on. Next week, um, in the bookstore, in our brand new remodeled bookstore, we are hosting a book launch for Dr. Michael Cameron of our theology faculty, who has just published a book on how Catholics look at scripture. And uh, it's a bargain at $9.95. <laughs> and the talk is a real bargain at free, all right? And uh, plenty of refreshments and a way to enjoy that wonderful space in a kind of different way. So I invite you there on Monday. We also have coming up, uh, we partner with the theater department here on campus, and for each of their main stage shows, we host a wine and cheese social um, for people who have tickets to the Saturday performance of the play. The, the wine and cheese social is uh, free, and we put together a panel of campus experts who shine a light on different aspects of the show, and you wind up seeing a much more complete and almost different show than you would uh, without, without those notes. So I invite you to think about that. If you are a K-12 teacher in any school system, we partner with the School of Education here to provide at no cost to you professional development units. They'll be in the mail to you uh, tomorrow if you just sign up uh, on the sign-up sheet in the back. We also have our full calendar for the rest of the semester and the things that we have lined up for next semester and we're adding things all the time. So if you don't have one of our calendars, I really encourage you to take that on your way out. And let's see, I think the last, oh, um, if you are a student in anyone's class other than Dr. Latin and you're here as part of that class, our fabulous student workers, Jessica and Sarah, will have sign-up sheets available for you after Mr. Wheeler's talk is concluded. I finally would like to welcome uh, two special guests, our president, Father Stephen, <coughs> and our provost, Dr. Thomas Green, um, sitting there in the back. We're delighted that you're here. And with that, I'll invite if you're standing, we have seats in the front. I know it's countercultural, but you're, you're welcome uh, to, to grab a seat. And I will turn you over to Father Charlie Gordon. Thank you, Karen. Christian faith is about relationships, as in love God and love your neighbor. The human relationships that are most 
fundamental to the life of faith are family relationships. See the Ten Commandments for details. Sadly, there are no guarantees, but our families remain the places where we are most likely to learn what love is and to practice it. Financial anxiety puts strain on families. Most of us, I imagine, can remember our parents fighting about money and how that made us feel. The peace of mind afforded by financial security promotes circumstances in which the family relationships fundamental to the spiritual life are most likely to thrive. Therefore, the personal practices and government policies that promote financial security matter deeply to Christians and to the Catholic Church. These concerns have no age limit. Financial well-being can protect older folks and their families from debilitating anxiety, enabling them to flourish as our best and most seasoned teachers and practitioners of love. In light of these realities, the Garaventa Center is delighted to have Ted Wheeler with us this evening. A sixth-generation Oregonian, Ted Wheeler cares deeply about Oregon and the state's financial health. He is committed to protecting the state's strong credit ratings, to ensuring that public investments remain both prudent and profitable, and to conservatively managing Oregon's debt. Since being appointed and then elected in 2010, He has directed efforts to implement money-saving technologies, authorized fraud lawsuits against firms that misled investors, earned an upgrade in Oregon's credit rating, and revamped the Oregon 529 College Savings Network with lower costs and more options for families. Treasurer Wheeler has also assumed a leadership role in economic development, convening business leaders, and spearheading a new statewide blueprint dubbed the Oregon Investment Act, approved by the legislature in 2012. Serving as chair of the Multnomah County Commission from 2006 to 2010, Ted Wheeler emphasized preventative services. Under his leadership, Multnomah County reduced the cost of government while maintaining safety net programs for the elderly, drug and alcohol treatment programs, and forging partnerships to fund a mental health crisis center. As the county's chief executive, he was responsible for reducing and balancing the budget and cutting the county's debt. He brings a strong management and financial background to the Office of State Treasurer. Before entering elected office, he worked in the financial services industry, including posts at Bank of America and Copper Mountain Trust, where he was a senior manager. Treasurer Wheeler earned his undergraduate degree in economics from Stanford University, an MBA from Columbia University, and a master's in public policy from the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. Born in Portland and a graduate of Lincoln High School, his family has deep Oregon roots. The town of Wheeler, located 
in Halem Bay on the Oregon coast is named after his great-grandfather. A longtime community volunteer leader, Treasurer Wheeler, has devoted energy to diverse organizations, including Neighborhood House, Portland Mountain Rescue, and the Oregon Sports Authority. When not working, he enjoys endurance sports and successfully summited Mount Everest in 2002. He snowshoed to the North Pole with his wife on their honeymoon. We're still married. (laughs) And regularly competes in the Ironman Triathlon. He lives in southwest Portland with his wife and daughter. Ladies and gentlemen, addressing us this evening on retirement security for all, a public policy solution to improved personal finance, in a real TED Talk, let's welcome Ted Wheeler. Well, good evening. How's everybody doing? Good. I apologize. I'm sort of losing my voice tonight. So if you see people rushing from the back of the room with water and or coffee, uh, that's why. So I I apologize right up front for that. Let me start by asking those of you in the room. Well, first of all, thank you for the gracious introduction. I don't believe I, I remembered to thank you. It was wonderful. Thank you. Uh, remind me to shorten it next time. There's a lot of extraneous detail in that. Um, those of you who are students here, how many of you have thought about your own retirement in the last month? Can I see a show of hands? I'm actually surprised and impressed, by the way, uh, that two people raised their hands. So let me put out something to you. Uh, You may be here today going, what on earth am I listening to a lecture on retirement security for? Let me assure you that when you are my age or older, this will become the most significant financial question in your life. You will obsess over it. And it will keep you up at night. And it will, for many of you, become the most significant thing that you think about every day. Before I get into that, let me just give you a little background. Because I know most people have no bloody idea what the state treasurer does. And uh, in case you're feeling badly about that or embarrassed, please don't be. Uh, I was initially appointed to the post. I was very happily ensconced in county government as a county commissioner, the chair of Multnomah County, and was enjoying myself thoroughly. And one day the phone rang, and it was the governor of the state of Oregon, former governor Ted Kulangoski. And uh, he gave me some very tragic news. He told me that my predecessor in the post had died very suddenly, he, he'd had a battle with cancer, and I'm sorry to say uh, he lost that battle. But the governor needed a replacement, and he needed to know that day whether or not I would take the job. Well, I happened to be at the beach. It was a Sunday. I was with my wife and my young daughter, 
And uh, I didn't really have a lot of time to think about it. My wife and I, uh, we got together and like, what, what should we do? What should I do? What's, what's the right answer here? And ultimately, my wife put her finger on the truth. And the truth in this case was that the governor uh, was asking me a very important once-in-a-lifetime favor. And she told me, she just said to me, Ted, the governor has asked you to do this, and really there's only one answer. And, of course, the answer was yes. And so I told him I'd do it. And later that night when we got back to my own house, uh, my wife was in the, the next room over. I was in the kitchen, probably reading the funny papers in preparation for my time as state treasurer. <laughs> and I heard this piercing scream come from the next room. I'm like, honey, what's wrong? What happened? And she goes, you just took a $55,000 pay cut. <laughs> so that inspired me to do a Google search on the remainder of the job to find out what I was in for. I knew the state had a, a treasure, but I didn't think about it. And in all seriousness, joking aside, what I learned was that it's one of the more important posts in public life that most people don't know anything about. The treasurer, in a nutshell, is responsible for managing the state's investment portfolio. You collectively have about $90 billion in various investment portfolios. As state treasurer, I'm responsible for the stewardship and the management of those portfolios. The treasurer also is responsible for issuing and managing the state's debt. As you heard in the very gracious introduction, the treasurer is the administrator of the Oregon College Savings Plan, and there's a bunch of other things that the treasurer is responsible for. But those weren't the things that inspired me, and they're not the kinds of things that get me out of bed. And I'll just tell you on all of those issues, you've got excellent public leaders in the Treasury who are doing top-notch work in every one of those areas. But what gets me out of bed is the recognition that those tools provide opportunities to address some of society's most pressing financial problems. And that's what I want to talk to you about today, is how we used one of those tools to be able to lay claim to addressing this issue of retirement security, the thing that only two of you have thought about in the last month that I'm arguing will become something that you obsess about. So today I'm going to tee up the issue and why it is relevant to you and your generation, maybe more relevant to you and your generation than it is to my peers in my generation. I'm going to talk about some of the trends, and I'm going to talk about what we're doing here in the state of Oregon to begin to lay the foundation for retirement security for your generation. This is something you have a direct stake in. So uh, let me back, start by backing the point I just made about how important this is going to become to you and potentially uh, someday your spouse and your family. I want to start by uh, elaborating on two polls that were conducted recently, nationwide polls. The first was conducted by Reuters. And what it showed was out of the entire universe 
of financial issues that people worry about, and this includes saving for college, this includes paying the mortgage, paying the rent, uh, paying medical bills, out of all the issues that households in America confront, by far the number one issue that people are concerned about is their own retirement security. So put that aside with a marker on it. The second poll I think is even more telling because it gets at how people feel about this issue of retirement security when they're my age or older and closer to retirement. By a factor of four to one, Americans are more concerned about running out of retirement savings than they are of their own death by a factor of four to one. And what's really hard to understand and appreciate when you've got your whole career ahead of you is that there will be a day when you'll wake up in the middle of the night and if you don't have a retirement plan, it's going to occur to you that when the day comes that you retire, and some people, by the way, don't have much choice. If you're in the trades, if you're a carpenter, you can't work forever in those trades. You're going to wake up one day and do some quick math in your head and go, holy cow, I could live for another 30 years beyond my retirement, and I don't have anything saved up for my retirement. What do I do? And what does that mean for me? And what does it mean for my family? And this is something that people think about. And I'm going to tell you the key to the whole enchilada right now. <clears throat> this is when you need to start thinking about it and planning it. Just as you guys, you know, when you graduate and you're starting to think about your careers, that's the right time and the easiest time to start thinking about it. Exactly the time when you think it's generations away and it's not problematic. So how big is this issue and why should we care? According to the National Institute of Retirement Security, these are the smart people in Washington, D.C. who monitor these things, they say the retirement deficit, that means the difference between what people have saved for retirement collectively versus what they need for retirement collectively, that deficit could be as high as $14 trillion. $14 trillion. Just to give you sort of a comparator, uh, the entire amount of outstanding student financial debt is currently about $1.2 trillion. So the retirement deficit is 14 times larger than the student debt crisis that many of you are probably in the process of permanently experiencing. Different subject for a different day. Have me back, because I have strong feelings about that, too. So um, the question always gets asked at this juncture, well, how much should I save for retirement? If I'm going to save for retirement uh, and I don't want to work for the rest of my life, how much is enough? There's different answers to this question, but typically people in the retirement security sphere say you should basically have saved up something in the neighborhood of eight times what you earn in a given year. Because different people have different 
standards of living. So for you, uh, something in the neighborhood of eight times what you earn in a given year. So if you make 50 grand in a year, you should have saved up something like $400,000. I can afford to be vague on this uh, because people aren't anywhere close to this. Uh, in fact, according to the Federal Reserve, Federal Reserve Bank, another uh, esteemed neutral source on this kind of information, two-thirds of Americans are not on track to save enough for their own retirement. Two-thirds. One-half of Americans ultimately won't have enough to retire with a semblance of dignity and economic security. And one-quarter of Americans don't have savings at all for retirement. An entire one-quarter of Americans. And what we learned here in the state of Oregon is if you're from a community of color, if you're a woman, if you are younger, you tend to be disproportionately clustered in the kinds of employment situations where you do not have access to retirement savings. I don't like to bury people with statistics late at night, but when I saw how busy the library was, I thought, what the heck? Uh, you guys live the dream large. So I'm going to throw one more at you, and I think this is the most important statistic I can give you tonight. If you want to remember one statistic, the mean household savings for retirement in the United States of America is effectively zero. The mean household savings in the United States for retirement is effectively zero. So that raises an obvious question. What the heck are we going to do? What's the consequence of having so many Americans effectively falling off of a financial cliff at the end of their working careers? I can only think of a couple of quick answers to that. Number one, people aren't going to retire. Uh, think about what you want to do for a living. Uh, I hope you enjoy it, because if you don't have retirement savings, you could be doing it into your 90s. And keep in mind, people live a lot longer than they used to. You guys look really healthy. You're going to be around for a while. See, that's the consequence, sir, of putting in that new health facility. Now they've got to save for retirement. It was good thinking on your part. That was smart. So... Um, here's what I think is the bottom line for my presentation tonight. If we cannot, as a society, find ways to encourage more people, people who can save for their own retirement, to voluntarily do so, the cost to taxpayers is going to be staggering. And I don't just mean any taxpayers. I mean you. Because my generation, and I'm at the tail end of the baby boom generation, we're the ones who are going to be in retirement with the statistics I just cited that demonstrate that financially we're not going to have enough saved. Half of us have zero saved for our retirement. So that puts the burden right on you. What are you going to do? Are you going to kick a bunch of old people onto the curb? I don't think that's a value they teach you here. <laughs> the other alternative means then you 
are going to be stuck with the bill for tens of millions of Americans who have not saved for retirement. And that means that's going to compete directly with the resources you need to put a roof over your family's head and feed them and be able to afford to send your kid to college and for you to be able to retire when it's your turn to enter your golden years. Am I waking you up? Do I have your attention? This is really about you uh, more than it is about me. This is one of these great inequities that I don't like. It's one of the things that motivates me as a public official. I don't like intergenerational inequity. I don't like the fact that you got stuck with the bill for higher college costs. I don't like the fact that you get stuck with the bill for higher pensions for people who are working today and you don't get the benefit of it. I don't like the fact that my generation owns the building that you are paying rent to. I don't like the fact that my generation had the benefit of building wealth and equity through homes that you can't afford. And this is one of the ways you can get back at the man. By beginning to talk about how do we create generational equity around retirement savings. So, uh, in the state of Oregon, we started looking at this issue 20 years ago. 20 years ago. And, you know, the governor said all the right things and the legislature said all the right things and the treasurer back then said all the right things and they did what all good politicians do when they have a tough issue that they don't know what to do about. They convened a task force. The world is full of task forces. And they put a bunch of great people on it and they came up with a bunch of recommendations around retirement security. And I don't mean to lecture you on history, but it's interesting uh, in terms of what was being discussed 20 years ago. 20 years ago, the concern was about this young generation of people. That's what the baby boomers were back then. They were you. They were young, uh, and it was actually about 25 years ago. And the concern was, hey, our generation is huge, and a lot of us are going to be entering retirement at exactly the same time. And for the first time, people were saying, starting to say Social Security isn't what we thought it was going to be. You all know about Social Security, right? You work, you get a piece of your paycheck withheld, goes into your retirement, your Social Security account. And then when you retire uh, at the stipulated federal age of retirement, you get uh, uh, an annuity benefit for the remainder of your life. But people were starting to realize Social Security, you know, there were questions about the very solvency of Social Security. Again, this generational question of how, how are we going to solve the problem, which, by the way, um, there's only two ways to solve. You can extend the federal working age or you can raise taxes. And uh, if your generation gets stuck with the bill, I could see both things happening. Um, so you should think about that. Again, another thing to keep you up at night, just as though you didn't need more. But I thought you should know because it's the truth. Um, so uh, they were looking at these issues and they were wondering, what should we do? Uh, Social Security, by the way, I think this was a wake up for my generation uh, 25 years ago because it's the first time people started saying, you know, Social Security was never designed or intended to be a sole source of retirement. 
It was supposed to be supplemented with household savings or private retirement savings accounts. And something that went the way of the dodo bird 25 years ago was something called a defined benefit retirement plan. And this is something some of your parents will remember. Um, They may even benefited from it. Uh, This is something certainly your grandparents knew about and probably participated in. The way a defined benefit plan worked was you'd go to work for a company. We'll call it IBM. And you'd start at your age as a junior analyst. And 40 years later, you'd retire from IBM. And you would be vested in IBM's defined benefit retirement plan. And you knew exactly how much you were going to get every year based on the number of years you worked and where you ended your career with IBM. That worked great and provided a lot of security combined with Social Security for Americans. But a lot of people didn't like that plan because it put the burden on retirement savings on whose shoulders? Who said that? Say it louder. With confidence, because you're right. The employer. It put the burden on the employer. And then somebody got this brilliant idea. Let's take it away from the employer, who undoubtedly had a CFO-level individual administering the plan, an entire board of accountants, CPAs, investment advisors, and connectors to Wall Street managing that plan 24-7 for their employees, Let's get rid of that and let's make the employees do it for themselves because they've got oodles of time and experience in this arena in addition to everything else we expect them to do during the day. And so this new instrument was created called the 401k. And there's other derivatives of the 401k and some of you probably even have 401ks. They're called, unlike the defined benefit plan, they're called a defined contribution plan. In other words, it's really clear what the employer is putting into the plan. No guarantees on what comes out on the other side. Unlike a defined benefit plan where the corporation through the plan mechanism is guaranteeing a clear and preordained benefit at the backside. So we shifted from defined benefit to defined contribution and put the risk on employees. The net result of that, of course, is the train wreck we have today that I've just described, which is a nation lacking retirement security. I want to put a contextual box over here. I know Bon hates this when I do this. He calls it my digressions on my digressions, and he's totally right. But I like like those books and pop-ups. I grew up with like MTV and pop-up video, so my brain sort of goes boop, boop. So pop-up video. Um, it's really important to remember that when we're talking about the retirement plans and defined benefit plans, uh, the reality is that here in the state of Oregon, half of the people who work in this state for compensation don't have access to any retirement plan at all. And that's going to figure prominently in what we're doing to fix the problem here in the state of Oregon. So 
Fast forwarding to two years ago. I've now gone from 25 years ago to two years ago. The state legislature said, you know, we really should do something about this now growing problem around retirement security in Oregon. Because if we can't find a way to get people to save, it's going to cost us a fortune as more and more retirees instead rely on costly government safety net services to get them through their golden years. So what did they do? Task force. It's time for a new task force. Good answer. They asked me to chair the task force. We put together a lot of smart people. Um, The first thing we did was we invited a person who had participated in the state's task force over two decades previously to give a complete presentation on the work they had done. We took their foot-thick binder and said thank you because it was still relevant. The only difference is the problem is now a lot worse because we didn't do anything about it. The difference this time is that Oregon is now on the vanguard of a national movement to address this issue. Oregon passed a bill, House Bill 2960, in the last legislative session. And it creates a board, not a task force, but a board that's already been given broad authority to create and implement a retirement savings program for all Oregonians who do not have access to a retirement plan through their place of employment. For a lot of Oregonians, this is going to be the first time in their lives they've ever had access to their own retirement savings account. The bill passed by the legislature identified criteria for this new plan. The board can shape it however they want, but there are certain sidebars, certain criteria that they're required to abide by. The first is that the plan has to be easily accessible by Oregonians. Well, what do I mean by easily accessible? Uh, By easily accessible, I mean it has to be available to Oregonians at their place of employment. Anybody here a small business owner or operator? Okay, them's fighting words. Because all of a sudden, we've just made employers the node for retirement savings. And of course, it's a state-sponsored plan. And generally, business owners don't like it when the state tells businesses to do anything. But here we are now telling employers, including small employers, that they are going to have a plan available at the place of employment. Why do that? Well, um, since you're all smart college kids, you know that we always fall back on research. And uh, one of the most seminal research studies was done by a guy named David Johns about six years ago. He did a longitudinal study. Uh, He's formerly of the Brookings Institution. Brookings Institute, he's now with AARP. And David Johns collected lots of data and proved beyond any doubt that Americans whether it's right or wrong, expect to get their benefits, whether it's health benefits, whether it's insurance benefits, whether it's retirement benefits. Americans just culturally expect to get their benefits through their place of employment. But it's more than expectations. It's about results. Americans are 15 times more likely to save for retirement if they have access to a retirement plan through their place of employment. 15 times more likely. That's the case for government 
asking or even directing businesses to make the plan available at their place of employment. It's the only thing that works for whatever reason. So that was the first goal. The plan has to be available at the place of employment. The second thing we did is we looked at making sure that people could easily participate in that plan. What's the easiest way to participate in something? When you don't have a choice. It just happens. Now, it turns out this plan is completely voluntary for participants, but with an interesting catch. We used what's called automatic enrollment. Most of you have probably heard about this. Uh, this is also a really interesting, just from a statistical perspective, if people are automatically enrolled in a plan once they become an employee, let's say I'm going to go work for you know, Baskin and Robbins, and I walk in the door, I fill out my employment application, they stamp it accepted because they didn't read my resume very carefully or whatever. Uh, I am now enrolled in the retirement plan created by the state of Oregon through my employer, Baskin and Robbins. That's automatic enrollment. But you, as an employee, I, as an employee of Baskin and Robbins, have the ability to opt out of the plan. If I don't want to do it, I sign my name here and say, I don't want to participate in the plan. And so it is completely voluntary for the participants. Here's where the United States is culturally very different from other countries. Between making it available at the place of employment and making it automatic enrollment with the voluntary opt-out, we're doing something that's culturally anathema to Americans. It feels like we're forcing it on people. But we're really not. We're just doing We're overcoming behavioral economics. Pop-up. Behavioral economics. Do, do you guys have economics here, right? Do you have courses in behavioral economics? Anybody here an economics major? Who's an economics major? Take behavioral economics if they offer it here. I went all the way through economics and didn't even know that there was a field called behavioral economics. And what a joy it is to come and bring in experts from around the country and the world to talk about behavioral economics. It's the study of why we're so stupid <laughs> and why we do things that are contrary to our own self-interest when it comes to economic choices. We know we're supposed to save for retirement. You all knew that, right? You all know that. That's not news. You're just going to get around to it later. Just like me. And just like people twice my age, you'll eventually get around to it. Oh, but half of us never did. That's behavioral economics writ large. We are ultimately stupid creatures when it comes to our own financial preservation. It's a miracle we haven't been pushed out of the gene pool, economically speaking. It's a miracle. So... Other countries don't have this conversation. If you were in Australia, you wouldn't have to listen to my boring lecture about behavioral economics or retirement security because they don't know what retirement insecurity is in Australia. They have an easy solution. If you're an employer, 
you are mandated to provide a retirement plan to your employees. If you're an employee, you are mandated to participate in the plan. That is the beginning, the middle, and the end of the conversation in Australia. And they're going, what the heck is wrong with these Americans that half of them are about to slide off the cliff economically in their golden years when they're least able to fend for themselves, and why, while they have a Congress who, by the way, does not appear particularly willing to act on their behalf, and other parts of the world that are industrialized don't have this problem. They think retirement security is part of life. It's like providing education or any other thing that people just think is a really important part of life. We're not there as Americans. This is anathema to American thinking today. And that's why Oregon's on the vanguard, because we're trying to change the thinking. We are saying, yes, you're going to lose a little bit of flexibility as an employer. And yes, we are asking you as employees, we're encouraging you to participate in the plan. You can still get out of it. That's the change in thinking. That's the new dynamic where did this idea, this behavioral economic idea of auto-enrollment come from? It came from a completely different context. In Australia, what's unique about Australia, aside from the fact that everybody's a derivative of criminal activity, what's unique about Australia? Who's been to Australia? How fun was that plane flight? Yeah, you, you flew first class. You got the cocktail section. Good. It's endless. Your back will be killing you by the time you get there. It's in the middle of nowhere. Australia is as close to Antarctica as you can get without being a penguin. That creates a lot of logistical problems that are really important to Australia. Like this, what happens if you have a catastrophic accident? Or what happens if there is a natural disaster in Australia? And what happens if you need a heart transplant or bone marrow? Or what happens if you need a cornea? They had very low participation in organ donors. 4% of the Australian public participated in their organ donor program. Like we, we can't get organs quickly enough to Australia to be able to actually use them successfully in transplants too many of the time. So people who really needed organs went without. And so they realized we've got to do something to get people more engaged in the donor, the organ, the organ donor program. And so they switched the program from being opt-in to opt-out. In other words, when you get your driver's license today in Australia, congratulations, you're an organ donor. <laughs> congratulations. Now, if you want to opt-out, sign this form. The psychological barrier created by that difference is significant. If it's opt-out, what, what kind of creatures are we? What kind of creatures are we? Ultimately, what kind of creatures are we? Social. We're, we're, you know, we're, we're, we, we have sort of a tribal herd mentality. We want to be part of the group. That's sort of at the core of who we are. It's innate to our species. If you're told everybody else is in the plan, but if you want to be different and opt out, go for it. Enrollment rates went from 4 to 86%. 
with the change from opt-in to opt-out. That's the science behind opt-in in the Oregon Retirement Savings Program. Those two things, locating it at the place of employment so it's easily accessible and making it an opt-out plan, overcome everything that the behavioral economists told us about how stupid we are when it comes to our own financial interests. It's just overcoming some of our innate ways that we respond negatively to financial issues. Then there was a bunch of other stuff. We wanted it to be portable so it could go from employer to employer. Uh, We wanted people to have the best chance at good returns in their portfolio, so we wanted the resources pooled and managed professionally as opposed to people trying to choose, pick and choose their own stocks because we know people just aren't that good at it, turns out. And uh, for employers, there were important things, too. There's a whole body of a law called ERISA that I won't talk about tonight, but we didn't want to expose employers to liability, to legal liability, particularly under the ERISA statutes. So we've now formed our board. We have an executive director. Uh, We're in the process of meeting. We'll be meeting for the next year and a half. We'll report back to the legislature at the end of 2016. The plan will go live on July 1st, 2017. And I'm proud to say that Oregon will probably be the first state in the nation to go live with this plan. And I want you to know that the Department of Labor, the President of the United States, and leadership in both houses of Congress are watching the work that we're doing here in the state of Oregon because they believe we may have a solution to what, as I argued right up front, was the most significant financial issue facing American families. And wouldn't it be great with all the other stuff that we have to worry about if we could make retirement one of the things that people don't have to worry about. That's our goal here. Uh, I want to thank you for listening. I hope it's been interesting. Uh, I don't know how many more minutes I have, if any, but if there's time for questions or thoughts on this or, frankly, any other subject, I'm I'm willing to entertain them. Uh, But thank you for being here. I know uh, most of you uh, are here because you're getting credit for being here. Uh, But I hope it was also worthwhile. You know, I I always appreciate this opportunity to share something I'm passionate about. I hope you take a grain of this with you as you leave today. So thanks for having me. I'll take questions. Who has questions? I guess I do. Mm-hmm. Yes, please. Okay, so uh, I'm a pretend I'm 22, and I have parents and grandparents. And I'm wondering right now, are they in the 25% or the 50% or where are they? And is there anything I can do to support them or anything that they, that I can tell them to do? Uh, since I don't tell them that I just heard Ted Wheeler talk, or... Um... So, um, here, here's, here's something I'm sorry to have to tell you. Um, most people, when they answer that question in the retirement industry, will say it's never too late to start saving for your retirement. You heard it from me first. There is a point when it's too late to start saving for your retirement. And it has to do with math. There's something called compound earnings, and probably most of you are already well familiar with this. I call it the magic. 
The most fascinating thing about finance is that if you take a little bit of money and you invest it and it earns interest, it compounds, so you get a little bit plus interest, then that compounds and it compounds again and again and again and again and it compounds every day for the entirety of the time that you have it in a retirement plan. The math works out so that even if you put a little bit in starting at your age, a little bit, and you're consistent about putting it in over time. It grows to be a gigantic number through the magic of compound earnings because there's a hockey stick effect in earnings. It can take you years to get to the point where you have sufficient funds to get to the hockey stick, right? And the reality is if you start saving when you're 55, it's too late. And so... um, I don't want to depress people, but I also don't want to lie to people. That's why this is such an important issue and why I think it's relevant to you. If you don't start early, you can't get to the hockey stick. And that's, that's why I, I, you know, I, I jump at the opportunity to speak to people who are 40 years away from their retirement who are saying, man, why, of all the things, I, I haven't figured out where I'm going to work. Uh, I don't know how I'm going to pay off my student loans. Uh, I've got to pay rent in Portland, which, by the way, is increasingly difficult to do. Um, This has got to be part of the overall financial equation. It's not easy. I know it's not. I have friends who struggle with this every day. But it's got to be part of the equation, even if it's just a tiny bit from every paycheck. 1%, 2%, 3% to start, that's sufficient. You can live without 3% of a paycheck, no problem. You can do it. Um, so for your parents, lie to them. Tell them they look great. Yes? We have one son that's on PERS because he works for a Clackamas County or Washington County. The other son is, does not have a plan. So this plan would be for those people who do not have a plan already. What if those, it wouldn't be an additional plan for those who have PERS. Fair question. Um, this only, the plan the state is creating, I should tell you, it's a bare bones plan. I'll call it a starter plan. It's going to be a low cost plan. It'll be like an IRA for those of you who know what it is. Limited choices, low cost. It'll be run by a private sector provider that earns the right through a competitive bidding process to run the program. Only employers that do not offer a retirement plan, a qualified, federally qualified retirement plan are subject to this. In the state of Oregon, about half of employers do not offer any kind of retirement plan and will be subject to this. So if you have PERS, you have a plan. If you're working for a company like Adidas down the street, they have a plan. The employees aren't eligible. The company's not required to do anything. The company does not, the company will not put money in That's correct. It'll be like an IRA. So if you are enrolled, your relationship as an employee isn't with the company, it's with the private sector provider. The company is going to be asked to hand out a form to you when they hire you. And they'll also do a payroll deduction, assuming you choose to participate, just like they do with FICA and everything else, any other withholding. But they're not going to give you advice. They're not going to counsel you. They're not going to sanction the plan. They are just the conduit through which the state-sponsored plan is going to be provided. They're out of it. Yes? Um, how would you recommend college, like, college students like us to start saving now? Are you employed? 
Um, yeah, part-time. So uh, there are 30,000 private sector retirement planning products on the market. As your state treasurer, I'm not legally allowed to give you advice at all. <coughs> but there are lots of things that you can do. Um, I would go to a Vanguard-like website and find a low-cost retirement security product, low-cost, that uses index funds, no active management, and because you're young, generally, I'm not giving anybody financial advice at all, generally, you can afford to take risks. So you would want to be in a more aggressive portfolio, generally speaking, according to current scientific theory around finance. Does that help? Or we can talk later. But again, I'm not allowed to give financial advice. I'm the state treasurer, not a salesman. Who else has a question? Yes. A lot of people's hopes and lives were crushed with Enron and Madoff and all those scandals. Yeah. Are there safeguards built into the plan that would preclude that? I mean, that just seems horrific to me, with, and it's too late. So you can never prevent fraud, graft, and misrepresentation. You can't prevent it. You can't stop it. But you can make it easier to ferret out, and you can make it easier to mitigate. And this plan has been created with that very much in mind. Um, specifically, there will be this board that's been provided by the legislation. That's there for transparency, public transparency and accountability. The RFPs will all be public information, and those who are lucky enough to participate uh, in providing this plan will be required to publicly disclose information regarding that plan. Um, in the entirety of modern history in the state treasury, we've had maybe three incidents out of hundreds and hundreds of relationships and billions of dollars transferred. We've maybe had three concrete examples of outright fraud or misrepresentation. And in every case, we've gone after them legally and recovered the dollars, or at least recovered a good chunk of the dollars. But this plan is designed so it's using existing products with existing companies that have proven track records under the auspices of a public body that has every right to ask for and disclose all information. And frankly, none of the types of companies we would do businesses with, do business with, can afford to be caught doing something fraudulent with this plan. It'll destroy them. Just in terms of public perception in the marketplace. So we, we will be dealing on the whole with good actors, but uh, as a former president once, president once said, trust but verify. And we have the controls in place to do that. We already do that with the rest of the $90 billion we manage in the Treasury. We have internal auditors. We have external auditors. We have uh, regular reports, both through the Department of Justice, the Secretary of State. Uh, we have teams that vet all of the investments. Uh, we have regular reporting back of how those investments are doing and how the assets are invested. So I'm, very, I'm actually very confident. Yes, sir. Um, will the employer receive any incentives for providing accessibility? 
Uh, great question. Uh, will employers receive any incentives for uh, providing? The board and the legislation, the, the legislation gave the board the authority to potentially reimburse costs to some providers if they can demonstrate a hardship. As of today, nobody has made the case, even employers, that there's any hardship here. All we're asking to do is hand out a packet and do another payroll deduction. For most of them, that's another deduction line on their withholdings. Uh, the cost is de minimis, the time required de minimis. But you know, there have been some industries like the agricultural industry that's concerned about the potential hassle factor, uh, and the board's been given authority for tax credits or other reimbursements in the event that that becomes necessary. I just don't think it's going to become necessary, personally. And by the way, this is good for employers. Uh, most employers that I've spoken to are really excited about this. A lot of small employers in particular want to provide retirement benefits because it's a good incentive to attract uh, good talent and maintain good talent. They're competing with bigger companies that can afford the complexity and the cost of larger retirement savings programs. And it's tough to compete against those employers. So a lot, a lot of small businesses are really jazzed about this. Not to say they're all happy about it, but most most are. Yes, sir. No, no. Um, there may be a requirement at the beginning, uh, just based on some of the early conversations we've had in agriculture. It's an episodic industry. A lot of people show up. They'll take one, two, three payrolls and then disappear. So we we might ask for some number of weeks before you vest, you know, before you're eligible to participate, but that's up to the board to decide whether they want to do that. But that's that's one of the conversations that's currently underway. One more question. You guys have been great. I really appreciate it. Thanks for hanging in there. Thanks for your patience and I hope this is worth your while. Thanks for having me here tonight. Thank you. Thank you.